What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. What a day, huh? Here in uh, Oregon, actually, one of our kids uh, lives in the south end of Portland and just got notified that they are in the pack all your stuff, get ready to evacuate area. There's a huge fire to the south of Portland and you just can't see outside. I mean, out the window here, I can typically see the freeway about a quarter mile away, and I can't see it, or I can barely see it. And this is wild stuff. In fact, Joyce, our call screener, was trying to get into work this morning, and the freeway is basically shut down. So she's going to be a little late, which means that I'm going to be putting you on the air directly without screening calls. So, uh, you know, it should work. Should be good. I was tweeting about 9-11, right? And... What I tweeted was, it's 9-11. On this day in 2001, almost 3,000 Americans were killed by foreign terrorists. Today, almost 200,000 Americans are dead because the man in the White House intentionally lied to us for nine months, and half of America believed him. Which is a worse tragedy slash crime? And I think it's a reasonable question. I'm getting some very, very... uh, Interesting responses, in addition to a few trolls out there. But Trump, he, uh, or broadly, I mean, he tried to compare himself to Winston Churchill, right? And uh, he says, as Franklin Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. We're doing very well. We are. He says, when Hitler was bombing London, Churchill, a great leader, would oftentimes go to a roof in London and speak. And he always spoke with calmness. Okay, fact check. Churchill never gave a speech from a rooftop in London during the Blitz. He would go up on rooftops from time to time to see what was going on, to watch the bombing, but he never got up to give a speech. Trump then goes on to say, he said we have to show calmness. He did it the right way. We've done a job like nobody. Well, yeah, we have done a job like nobody. Here's what Churchill actually had to say. He says, we are preparing for one of the greatest battles in history. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. He went on to say, we have before us, this is Churchill, 
who Trump lied about in Michigan. Churchill said, we have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. Now, Trump, back on February 10th, right after he had told Bob Woodward how deadly this disease was, publicly said, you know, a lot of people think this goes away in April with the heat. The heat comes in. Typically, that'll go away in April. Here's what Churchill had to say. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. This, by the way, Mark Sumner put together a great concatenation or kind of interlacing, actually, of these quotes over at DailyCoast.com. So Trump says, you have 15 people, and the 15 within a couple days is going to be down to close to zero. That's a pretty good job we've done. This, you know, lying through his teeth. That was February 27th. Churchill, you ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. And Trump again saying, oh, yeah, Churchill said, calm down, don't worry. I lied to people the same way Churchill did, you know. Essentially is what he was saying. Churchill said, I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aid of all. And I say, come then, let us go forward with our united strength. Then, meanwhile, Trump was lying to us. He was lying to all of us. Now, keep in mind, back in May, the House of Representatives, on a bipartisan basis, there were some Republican votes for this, voted for the HEROES Act, which it was a $3 trillion. It funded state and local governments to get them out of the crisis that they're in. And by the way, the wildfires aren't helping any in, the, in a dozen western states. It gave everybody 600 bucks a week. Keep in mind, this was back in May. This passed the House on a bipartisan basis. It gave everyone on unemployment 600 bucks a week. It funded the Postal Service. It funded our election security, et cetera, et cetera. McConnell refuses to bring that up. He threw out a bill that eliminates liability for companies for their workers' deaths or sickness as a result of their basically forcing them into COVID situations and, and gave 300 bucks a week to people. And it's like, really? Anyhow, the Democrats stopped it, which I think is a, probably a fairly good thing. And here we go. You want to know what a worker's life is worth in America? Donald Trump's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, speaking of limitations of liability, Mitch McConnell is trying to take this down to zero. A meatpacking company was fined by OSHA for exposing their employees. 1,294 employees got COVID, and they were fined roughly $10 per person. How dare you? This is against Smithfield, the Chinese company, the Chinese-owned meatpacking plant, largest chicken processors in the United States, chicken or pork, one or the other. Maybe it's pork, whatever it is. This was in their Sioux Falls plant. They were fined a total of $13,400. $13,494. Roughly $13,500. I mean, this is crazy. This is just crazy stuff. But where I was going with this, just to finish this thought, is that when McConnell proposed that and then after it was defeated said, okay, basically that's it. He's washing his hands. Congress is only in session for a couple more weeks, and then they're gone until after the election. All of October, no Congress, right? And I think that McConnell is looking at the polling 
And he's saying, okay, Republicans are going to lose the House, we're going to lose the Senate, we're going to lose the White House. So what's our number one priority? Well, number one and two. Number one, of course, get more federal judges in place so that we can block anything that progressives try to do, Democrats try to do that's progressive. And number two, destroy the economy. Right. The longer people aren't getting enhanced unemployment benefits when you've got 10 million unemployed people in the United States, the longer there's not what's called aggregate demand. There's not people buying things, which drives the economy. So he's trying, in my opinion, what's going on is Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump are trying to crash the economy in the hopes that, you know, when the Democrats come in, they inherit a mess even worse than the one that George W. Bush left to Barack Obama. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Or the mess that Richard Nixon and Jerry Ford left Jimmy Carter. Or the mess that Reagan and Bush left left Bill Clinton. On the science revolution this week, the impact of the pandemic on Trump's refusal to acknowledge science or join the World Health Organization's backed vaccine cooperation pact. It's harming Americans as Trump brings the con into the pandemic. Dr. Bandy Lee is here on the science of hate-mongering. Is Donald Trump's hate contagious? Ellie Zupnik drops by about another broken promise on drug pricing from Donald Trump as the August 24th deadline comes and goes. Plus, Kevin Patel is here on the pollution from wildfires. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are found. The air in Oregon is a, just an absolute mess. And at the same time, our economy is an absolute mess. How is it that the stock market is up when nobody has the money to buy anything? It's being reported that the Fed now owns a third of all the mortgages in the United States. When did that happen? The Fed is buying stock in big companies. What the hell is going on here? Let's check in with Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, the co-founder of democracyatwork.info the author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Socialism, and uh, R.D. Wolf with two Fs dot com is his other website, Prof. Wolf with two Fs over on Twitter. Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. So what's the deal? The Fed owns a third of our mortgages? Really? Yep, it does. And the way to understand this is to see it sort of historically. One of the ways you judge an economy is whether or not the system of the enterprises and the organization of the factories and the stores and the offices does or does not equip the mass of the people in a society with the things they need to to lead a decent life. And we all know what those are. An adequate supply of food for a healthy diet, clothing to keep warm, a roof over your head, housing, medical care, transportation, schools, we all know. Well, one of the most important of those is housing. And once upon a time in this country, before, say, previous to 100 years ago, we were, in general, able to provide housing for people. wasn't the greatest, particularly in our cities where waves of immigrants came in and had to live in tenements, but we provided housing. To make a long story short, when the Great Depression hits in the 1930s, A quarter of Americans lose their homes, a a spectacular collapse of the ability of people to pay rent, the ability of people to buy their own home. And it became finally clear in that terrible crisis 
that we had a problem. We did not give the mass of our people enough in wages and salaries to be able to afford a decent home if they were going to feed themselves, etc., etc. So the government, and I know this is a problem for libertarians and others, but the government stepped in because there was no other way. And it started in the 1930s. We created a series of uh, arrangements. The most famous was basically the government coming in, setting up an institution which guaranteed the mortgage that a person would uh, take out to buy his or her home. In other words, for a small fee, the government would step in and say to the bank, go ahead and lend money to Mr. and Mrs. Smith to buy their home because we, the U.S. government, will guarantee that even if Mr. and Mrs. Smith can't make their monthly payments, we, the government, will do so because there was no other way to get the banks to lend to the average Americans who were going homeless. Now fast forward to today. The situation today is even worse. That's really important. Even worse for the housing market of this country than it was back then. We have tens of millions of people facing eviction now at the end of December of this year. And we have huge numbers of people that have stopped paying their mortgages and do not have any prospect at this point of being able to do it. No bank in their right mind, therefore, would lend money. Nobody would lend money to people now in the business of buying or trying to buy a home because of the terrible economic circumstances. Enter the government in a bigger way than ever before. Basically, what the Federal Reserve is doing is saying to all American lenders, particularly mostly banks, go ahead, lend money to a Mr. and Mrs. Smith for a mortgage to buy a house. Don't worry about it, because literally within minutes after you sign the papers, you bank, you've given uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith $100,000, you've gotten the mortgage written, you turn around and you sell it to the Federal Reserve. How does the Federal Reserve... Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs, and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman the two ends before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. 
They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Reserve pay for it by printing new money. The Federal Reserve creates money. It's been creating money by the trillions over the last six months. And so what it has basically done is said, we will now, in the end, provide the credit for the housing market. It's important to understand that fundamental to our capitalist system is the housing market, and that is now on life support from the federal government as so much else is, and that the notion that we have a private capitalist economy is a mistake. We have an economy that can't function on a private capitalist basis and therefore is relying on the government while it pretends that we still have a private capitalist system. So the mechanism for this, the the how it works, I'm guessing is relatively invisible to the average homeowner. Somebody goes to Wells Fargo, takes out a mortgage, buys their house. The person who sold the house gets the money. Wells Fargo has the paper. Wells Fargo makes the commission and books the profit immediately. And then Wells Fargo turns around and sells that mortgage to the Fed. But the Fed's not in the business of accepting your monthly payments. That's still going to Wells Fargo, isn't it? Often, yes. Often the arrangement is, because the Fed doesn't want to be in that position, that they have an intermediate, a mortgage servicer. It can be the bank that originated it. It's actually more often another intermediary that functions in that way. You, the mortgage holder, may end up sending your monthly check to the same place, but all that is is a mail drop. It is all handled, of course, paid by the Federal Reserve, which is you and me, basically, paid to handle it, but the final owner, the creditor, the person who legally has lent you the money is the Federal Reserve. The government, and by the way, as a result of that, mortgages are available. You wouldn't be able to get a mortgage 
now for millions of Americans. And even if you did, you'd be paying much higher interest rates. So the government is coming in, providing the money, driving down the interest rate, current average interest rate 2.91%. That's because the Federal Reserve has stepped in with this freely printing and creating money to stimulate the economy in this way. The only joke, if you like, is that the promises that were made back in the 30s that this was a temporary arrangement to get us out of the Depression, turns out it wasn't temporary, it has never stopped. It's only bigger now than it was for most of the previous time, except in moments speaking. So you can see a total reliance on the government. So a friend of mine's son moved to Portland a little while ago and was looking for a house. And this guy reached out to me and said, you know, you don't have any houses for sale. And I'm like, I, you know, I, I really don't, but keep me up to date. He made an offer on a house, asking price. Within an hour, they had two other offers that were $100,000 over the asking price. This is a $600,000 house, which is kind of average house here in Portland or in downtown Portland. You know, I'm not in downtown, but, you know, housing is expensive down there. Is that why? Is that why housing prices are exploding all over the country? It's part of it. It's part of it. But absolutely, you've got record low mortgage rates, which means you can lock into a house with 20 or 30 years of uh, historically low amounts of monthly cost of the mortgage. And you have literally an open spigot on the money because it's literally being created with a click of your computer in Washington, D.C., in the Fed headquarters. So, yes. Does this end badly? The reason that happens is is, it's kind of crazy time with the money. Yeah. So uh, next week when we talk, I want to ask you, how does this end badly? I mean, you know, it it seems... Seems like maybe it's a good thing over the short term. I'm not sure, but uh, we'll continue the conversation. Professor Wolf, thank you so much for dropping by today. Okie doke. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you and, and uh, helping us all understand this stuff. And Professor Wolf, you, Prof Wolf on Twitter, rdwolf.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And democracyatwork.info are his websites. Check them out. There's some great stuff. His newest book, Understanding Socialism, is brilliant. Hey, we have a special new video up over at TomHartman.com, and it's about how FDR in 1944, January 44, in his State of the Union address, talked about how important it was to add rights to the Bill of Rights. The original Bill of Rights was all political rights. He said it's time to enshrine economic rights in our Constitution. I would add, like most of the governments of Europe have done, and this includes the right to housing, the right to food, the right to good job that pays well, the right to an education, including a college education, and the right to health care. It's pretty powerful stuff. And frankly, I think that what this coronavirus crisis is proving is that we are all in this together and that Reagan's thing about government is never going to help you was just a a load of crap. And so you can check it out over at TomHartman.com. Jessica in Eugene, Oregon. Boy, it it must be uh, brown skies down there, too, from what I'm hearing about the fires. It is. And unfortunately, we're waiting for word to Springfield. Part of Springfield is in level one right now. And so it's just kind of nerve wracking. I'm sure you feel it in Portland. Um, What does level one mean? Level one is uh, where you are to be ready. Level two is be set. And level three is you need to evacuate and go. 
and a lot of level three is happening around us. And so fortunately, Eugene being a very popular city, we've got a city to protect us, but it's still daunting. We have everything packed at our front door ready to go. I can imagine. You know, we've got family down in Ashland that we tried to reach out to to make sure that they were safe. And, you know, we didn't hear back from them for two days. And turns out that once we did hear back from them, they decided not to state how safe they were. They decided to send us a tweet by Paul Romero speaking about how Antifa were setting the fires. And all of this, no, you're kidding. I'm <laughs> angrily, what I still call far-right propaganda as to when we're talking about the economy, we're talking to great people like Professor Richard Wolff. And when I grew up listening to Robert Reich, you know, how do we talk to these people about how wrong this is to be stating these things during this election time, during these fires, during this economy? And as a millennial, we've been told it is on us to fix these problems, which are so ginormous now. You know, it's just mind-boggling to me, especially getting that from somebody who had to evacuate. And that was the first thing that they decided to go towards. Yeah, it is a tough one. I don't know what to say, you know, with regard to people saying that, you know, Antifa or Black Lives Matter are starting the fires in Oregon I mean, uh, or anywhere else. Obviously, it's a lie, number one. But uh, number two, the problem doesn't seem to be, in my mind, so much the individual people who are saying this, they're getting that from somewhere. And nine times out of 10, it seems they're getting it from Facebook. And I think that we've got a giant problem in this country with Facebook. It has become a right wing cesspool. Are you hearing from the people that are telling you these things? Are they telling you this via Facebook or are they, are, you know, are they quoting site? Is yes. this where they're getting their information, Jessica? This one is specifically from a tweet. This person or family specifically gets information from far-right YouTube, is on Facebook pages that are far-right propaganda, and that's all that they're about. And this is not the only family member, but it was completely shocking during this time. And in Oregon, too, uh, to account the fires for Antifa, which it, it totally is not. And, you know, we've had questions with this particular person about the protests and things like that, but... I'm just finding it, you know, these fires are going to create economic disaster for us. They're going to be losing houses for people, including where he is at, on top of COVID. <laughs> so yeah. I yeah. Just, I'm flabbergasted, and I felt like I needed to share that. Well, thank you, Jessica. You know, we've got a big job. And after the election, we've got, you know, it's clean up on aisle six, right? I mean, you know, these, these guys have just been smashing the pickle jars all over the floor, and we've got to do something about it. Jessica, thank you for the call. And I think that regulating Facebook is, is going to be a big piece of it. Or maybe them waking up, you know, Zuckerberg, I mean, he owns more than half the company, so it's basically his little kingdom, waking up to the fact that what he's doing is actually destructive to his fellow, fellow human beings. Today we're reading from Behold America by Sarah Churchwell, The Entangled History of America First and the American Dream. This is from the prologue. On Monday, 30 May 1927, a cool day with showers forecast, New Yorkers were gathering for the annual Memorial Day parades around the city. It was only nine years since the end of the European War, into which America had been so reluctantly drawn and Europe had suddenly become closer than ever before. Precisely ten days earlier, Charles Lindbergh had completed the first solo flight across the Atlantic in the spirit of St. Louis, 
and no one had yet stopped celebrating. Front pages around the country reported that Lucky Lindy had been mobbed in London, greeted by rapturous crowds of 150,000. Few Americans were talking about much else than the newest national hero, but in New York that day, different kinds of mobs were about to gather. Around 8 a.m., a group of Italian immigrants living in the Bronx set out for the elevated train on their way to Manhattan to join the parade. But they were not going to honor the American soldiers who had died in the service of their country. They were supporters of Mussolini, planning to join 400 American fascists who were marching in Manhattan's Memorial Day parade as part of the official fascist movement in the United States. They had been invited by the parade's organizers to the outrage of many anti-fascists, including Italian nationalists and anarchists who threatened violence if the invitation wasn't rescinded. It wasn't. Like all his fellow fascists intending to march that day, Joseph Carisi was wearing the black shirt uniform, sporting leather boots, jodhpurs, a black cap, and carrying a steel-tipped riding crop. When he stopped to buy a newspaper, Carisi was jumped by two men, stabbed in the neck, and left to die on the sidewalk. Another fascist, Nicholas Amoroso, who was running either to catch up with his group or away from the killers, reports vary, was shot four times, once right through the heart. One of the two murdered men had served in the American Army during the Great War, the other with the Italian Army, papers reported. The parade they had meant to join took place without them, a fascist delegation of several hundred that was guarded by police to, quote, avert disorder. After the parade, the American blackshirts returned to their headquarters in the heart of Times Square. There, another of the fascists standing outside was set upon by three men. He defended himself with his riding crop as his fellow blackshirts charged out brandishing clubs and whips, chasing the assailant through the theater traffic in Times Square, who fled as the blackshirted mob tore through the traffic. A hundred fascists, reported the New York Times, rushed the attackers. A melee ensued that was quickly dispersed by the police. There was also violence in Brooklyn, where a parade of fascisti marched from the Angelo Riza Fascista League at 274 Troutman Street in Bushwick. The L.A. Times reported several hundred men were parading, including 40 or 50 in the black shirt uniform. Fights broke out between supporters and protesters mingling on the sidewalks, and an anti-fascist was found lying on the ground, stabbed in the back. He survived and identified a fascist as his assailant. Accompanied by 30 police reserves to forestall violence, the marchers made their way through Brooklyn, stopping at the Wilson Avenue station, where the fascisti came to attention and gave the fascist salute. They ended at a Roman Catholic church, where the priest blessed them under large American and Italian flags, while the police remained on guard. The biggest outbreak of violence at Memorial Day, however, occurred in Queens, where it centered around a different right-wing group, not Italian-Americans, but the self-proclaimed 100% American kind. By 1927, the Ku Klux Klan had spread across the United States since its rebirth in Georgia 12 years earlier. The first Klan was formed in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, as former Confederate soldiers in Tennessee created a secret society to promote white supremacism and terrorize the newly freed slaves in the South during the Reconstruction era. The name is generally believed to originate from the Greek word for circle, kuklos, a clan pays homage to the mystified Celtic heritage supposedly shared by white Southerners. Within a decade or two, the first clan had been successfully suppressed by law enforcement and died out by the turn of the century. But in 1915, it was resuscitated in Georgia, and by the early 1920s, the second clan had achieved a powerful political presence in the United States, not only in the South, but across the country. I would add this is because of uh, 1915, the movie Birth of a Nation came out. 
The Klan had an active presence in New York City and Long Island by 1927 with favorite slogans, which they even attempted to copyright at various points. That year, the Klan was, quote, calling attention to the fact that it first announced the program of 100% Americanism and of America first. They were not, in fact, the first to adopt these mottos, as this book will show. In 1927, both phrases had been around for a decade or more. But as far as the Klan busily copywriting hate was concerned, America first belonged to them. And on Memorial Day in Queens, a thousand or so of them had gathered to march, many in white robes and hoods. They were accompanied by 400 women from the so-called Clavana, the feminine branch of the Klan. Some of the reported 20,000 spectators in Queens that day objected to the Klan's presence as others defended their right to march. Scuffles broke out and it turned into a riot. Women fought women and spectators fought the policemen and the Klansmen as their desire dictated, said a newspaper. Klan banners were shredded and five of their number were arrested, said initial reports, while a few others were caught up in the confusion as well. The book, Behold America, Sarah Churchwell. Tom Harmon here with you. On the line with us is the lieutenant governor of the state of Michigan, Garland Gilchrist II. Uh, Michigan.gov is the website. Uh, his Twitter handle is LTGOV, as in Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist, G-I-L-C-H-R-I-S-T. Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist, in Michigan, you guys, and I, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what role you played in this, but Michigan has essentially said that racism is a public health crisis. And, you know, at one level, I think this probably should be obvious to anybody who has, you know, looked at, you know, the situation in America for the last 400 years. On the other hand, there are people responding to this with basic freak out. Uh, tell us about it. Um, first of all, it is always a pleasure to talk with you and be with you here. And yeah, so I'm proud to have played a major role in this and I've been able to work very closely alongside Governor Gretchen Whitmer, our governor, and our states had a very strong, we believe, uh, COVID-19 response. We were hit early. We were hit hard. But thanks to, frankly, the diversity in our leadership team of Governor Whitmer, myself, a black man, you know, highest ranking black elected official in the history of the state, our chief medical executive, Dr. Jonay Caldoun, who is also a dynamic black woman, we were one of the first states that started looking at race and ethnicity when it came to COVID-19 infections and deaths. And what we saw is that there were racial disparities in this pandemic, just like there's racial disparities um, in health outcomes for generations. And so that's why we created the Racial Disparities Task Force for COVID-19. We're the first state to take that action that will put the full force of state government behind reducing and eliminating disparities in COVID-19. And one of the things that we learned in that work was that, you know what, we need to zoom out even farther and look at all of the ways that state government can help to uh, address this public health crisis that has been caused by racism and by how racism has, has infected the way the systems have been designed, the way the barriers have been constructed for to block access to opportunities for people. And so we've unlocked the full power of state government to be able to do the data collection and the analysis and the policy change to be able to overcome the stain that racism has put on outcomes in our state and frankly be a model for the rest of the country. Back on uh, April 7th, on that day or the day before, let's say April 6th, 
the White House, the administration, the federal government, right across the board, and most of the states were all in on, oh my God, there's this terrible virus coming. We've shut down the country now for three or four weeks. We've got to keep it shut down until we've got this under control. Jared Kushner and Trump and these guys had put together an entire plan to use the Defense Production Act to force the production of test kits so that we get a widespread testing and contact tracing. We're going to do everything right. And then April 7th, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News all broke the story. ABC, CBS, NBC all broke the story that African-Americans and Hispanics were dying about two to one to white people, uh, even though white people are the majority of, of people in America. And I was on the air and I said, you know, this is going to change the Republican Party's position on this. And sure enough, within a week... The Freedom Works, the you know the right wing group that the Koch brothers had been you know funded back in the day that brought us the Tea Party, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Republican Party, the Trump administration. All of a sudden, everybody was like, "Oh well, then let's open the country back up again right now." And you know, as a consequence of that, black and brown people are overrepresented in frontline, low paid positions, and white people are overrepresented in white collar, I can work from home positions. And it's just rolled on since then. Can you speak to that, Garland, to this idea that even our national policy on COVID seems to have been, I mean, you don't have to buy into my, my conspiracy theory, but seems to have been altered by this information about race? Well, the truth is, well, we can put the framing aside and just look at the facts, Tom. I mean, the truth is, President Trump, this should surprise no one that he frankly cares less about the health outcomes for black people and for people of color across the board. And so you talked about the fact that people of color are overrepresented in those jobs that have never stopped working, whether it's working at utilities or first responders or grocery stores or bus drivers. And so we tried to put in place worker protections at the state level because those didn't come from the federal level, from the federal government, from the Trump administration, because that was exposing black and Latino and Native American people to the virus more. We actually helped to, to lift the barriers that existed for testing because Trump didn't have a national testing strategy. He certainly was not interested in getting tests where they needed to go in places like Detroit and other places where we have high concentrations of people of color. But we did that and unlocked it and made it more accessible by creating drive-through testing and actually created drive-to testing because for people who are relying on public transportation, which are also more people of color than white people in, in Michigan, for example, um, you can't take a bus to a drive-through. And so we actually made, you know, worked with Ford to make these mobile vans where we would drive tests to people in the community. So we tried to break down those barriers that the Trump administration eradicated with their negligence, their ignorance, and the, the racist outcomes of the policies that they put forward or the policies they did not put forward because they, you know, turned a blind eye, uh, a willing blind eye to this pandemic. Is it working? Yes, yeah, so we've been tracking this data, like I said, since the beginning. We had our first COVID-19 case on March 10th. Actually, which was the night of our presidential primary, incidentally. And what we are beginning to see is that the interventions that we've been taking as a state overall are shrinking that racial disparity gap. We're um, making sure that we're, we got all the, the, the you know, T's crossed and the I's dotted on that verification process. But we're getting data every week and we're seeing that it's having an impact. And we think that's a model for the rest of the country. So we're very proud of that and are looking forward to sharing it with everyone. That's absolutely marvelous. Garland Gilchrist II, the lieutenant governor for the state of Michigan, uh, michigan.gov, Twitter handle LTGOV Gilchrist. And Garland, thanks so much for dropping by. Uh, Please give our very best to Governor Whitmer and say hi to Ellen for, for Louise and me. Absolutely, Tom. Take care. 
Thank you. You too. To the Tom Hartman program. Coming up on 28 minutes past the hour, we'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Tom Hartman here. Did you know that the Second Amendment was written to protect the slave patrols in South Carolina and Georgia back in the day? It's in my new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. Check it out. Thanks so much. Charles in Miami. Charles, what's up? Hey, great to hear from you. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to say that listening to Joe Biden, 
I have been preaching. I have been begging. I have been trying to, you know, bring the Democrat Party to where I think they should be as far as at the end of this administration, <clears throat> if Trump is out, that there should be criminal charges for, for people in this administration. And I thought I heard Joe Biden say, from the fact that, from the Woodward tapes, that Trump, what he's doing is almost criminal. And I'm just mm-hmm. hoping that the Democrats seize on that because we've swung too far to the right. You know, we've talked about this in the past because I basically said that they were having like almost a shadow government. And all mm-hmm. of this money that they get um, when, when they go, you know, right now through the elections and they save up all this money and they it's just they're just all corrupt. And it's only about big business. And I got a question. I want to ask you for weeks now. When Nixon, mm-hmm. when he went to China, and because, you know, there was already a civil rights bill passed, did they use that as offshore money for the Republicans? I mean, did they put all, did they invest everything that they could, as far as Republicans are concerned, to, to save up for a war chest, to fight civil rights, and to get us to this point where we are with a Donald Trump today? Because after Donald Trump, if we don't do anything about him, I think the next Republican president is going to be more brighter, more smarter, more diplomatic, and he'll be able to finish off what Donald Trump can't finish off right now. As far as yeah, I know, agree with you, Charles. Totally yeah. destroying. Yeah, the Tom Cotton is my nightmare. And I, with regard to Nixon and China, my recollection of that, and and again, mm-hmm. this is I'm I'm working off a 40 year old memory here, is that Nixon was being either bribed or paid or spiffed or campaign donated by Pepsi. And Pepsi wanted to establish a beachhead in the uh, in the largest country in the world, population-wise, which is China. And Nixon went to China to try to open China up on behalf of Pepsi. That's that's my recollection, my understanding, Charles. And that that was just a you know pure and simple. That was the beginning of the Republican embrace of so-called free trade. And because up to that point, I think pretty much all Americans had been uh, protectionists. I've been wondering. Did they take all of their money that, you know, offshore accounts, whatever, were they always just, you know, planning on building up China where one day, you know, like just when the Soviet Union fell, they were able to, you know, send their market, I mean, send their business over, overseas, still sell to Americans, and they're, they're making hand over fist because, you know, either way you go, that's where the Republicans, that's where big business is. And, yeah, you know, I, I think that it was more like, you know, let's put money in the pockets of Pepsi in this case. And then, you know, Reagan came along and said, let's, you know, let's help all these big companies move their manufacturing to China because that will increase their profitability and they'll like that. But, um, you know, the, the Republican Party's commitment to stopping anything that has to do with civil rights or integration or rational racial policies in the United States, that all really took fire in uh, 66, 65, 66, 67. The last four years of the uh, Lyndon Johnson administration right up to 68. And that's what Nixon ran on with his Southern strategy in 1968, which was basically, let's reach out to white racists. And, and they've been doing it ever since. Charles, thanks for the call. Gene in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. Hey, Gene, what's up? Hi, Tom. I want to comment on uh, Professor Wolf and follow up what he said about these banks. I've been doing this for two years. I called your show about two years ago. And if, I don't know if you remember, but I went through, uh, I'm going through a foreclosure process now, and this is my second one. 
And what I'm seeing, I work with a group in the Pittsburgh area that actually was doing these loan modifications. And what Professor Wolf's talking about, is it's actually even worse than that. Back in 2004, Tom, when I got hurt on my job, I'm a veteran, I worked 30 years for a major railroad, I got in an accident, and Countrywide became as the plaintiff against me. My loan was sold five times in seven months. And when I was in a Senator Arlen Specter at the time, Pennsylvania had two Republican U.S. senators, he did try to do something. That's how I met this group. The VFW heard my story, me being a veteran. Who showed up for Countrywide's legal team was Fannie Mae's attorneys. I said, well, what are you doing here? You're not the named plaintiff in the court document. This is what's, what's going on. And they're, right, they're saying they're, we, bought, we bought the mortgage. Right. And who should, like, so in the long short, in the short of it, Tom, what ended up happening at the end, after these people asked questions, his staff, and I asked my questions, he goes, Gene, I know there's fraud all through this, but who's going to take the hit? I wasn't savvy in all this, Becky, but this lady came over to me, and she was in this group. She said, Gene, the reason why they ain't taking your money, you're worth more than foreclosure, because the records they're creating are backing securities that don't exist. And now I'm in the, uh, that, that now the, the court case I'm in now is on this house. I had a loan put on my property in 2005. I, re, I didn't do the loan. I rescinded it. Two years later, it stampede in full Bear Stearns investment. It's the loan number they're using on that one now I'm in state court with. It's a joke. Oh, man. And, yeah, and no, it's, a, it's like a Ponzi thing. scheme. I mean, I mean, the whole thing. Gene, thank you for the call. The, the, this whole, and now the Fed's in on it, right? I mean, it's, the, welcome to Republican economics. It's bizarre. Uh, we'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls. Uh, New York Police Department hit with a lawsuit uh, for breaking the neck of a black Muslim woman You're during a traffic stop. Tom Hartman program. A traffic stop? So over at TomHartman.com, we put up a video that talks about Malcolm X saying, if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are oppressed and loving the people who are the oppressors. He said that 55 years ago, in 1965. And, you know, what that actually means, how that warning from Malcolm X was apparently taken to heart by the Republican Party in 1981 through the Reagan presidency. And we actually saw this shift in America to the point where, you know, that led to everything. I stop and frisk and the demonization of homeless people and the demonization of poor people and, and black people and Muslim people and all of this stuff came out of this very specific kind of Lee Atwater strategy in the 1980s. So you can find it over at TomHartman.com and check it out. This is insane. A white guy goes into a black church and kills a whole bunch of people, and they take him to Burger King. Another white guy takes an AR-15 to, uh, to a protest and kills a couple of people, blows the arm off the third, and, uh, you know, the, the, they let him walk right by the police cars, wave at him, give him something to drink. Here, have a drink. And then there's this. This is one of the more infuriating things. A simple traffic stop, this is from Occupy Democrats. A simple traffic stop got out of control after officers refused her request. This is a Muslim American woman, a black woman who is Muslim, was stopped by police for a traffic stop. And she requested only to be touched by a female officer because of her religious beliefs. 
The police officers, quote, became aggressive and threw the plaintiff to the ground. The lawsuit alleges that Officer Tihun Khan then pressed his knee down on the plaintiff's neck and in her back while she yelled she couldn't breathe. She was dragged across the ground to the point where her undergarments were exposed to deliberate humiliation by the police before being shoved roughly into the car sideways as they yelled stupid B-word at her. Having sustained injuries during her assault, she demanded that they take her to a hospital or render her some kind of medical assistance, which they refused to do. She was left with a broken neck. She has a fracture in her neck. She's now suing the New York Police Department. <laughs> that makes sense. But, you know, why did this happen in the first place? And, you know, along the same lines, or actually along, you know, the flip side of this, I mean, the good news here, the Virginia House of Delegates, this was a couple of days ago, the Virginia House of Delegates narrowly passed legislation Tuesday rolling back qualified immunity for police. The bill now heads to the Virginia Senate. This is the second time it's, it's gone through the House. This time it finally passed by one vote. And now it's going to the Virginia Senate. So, you know, a lot going on. Andrew in Illinois. Hey, Andrew, what's up? Hello, Tom. I'd like to hear your thoughts about the the United States Chamber of Commerce uh, early in the pandemic lobbying the Trump administration to not invoke the Defense Production Act in order to allow market prices to dictate, you know, uh, protective equipment. Right. Well, what happened instead was that the price of protective equipment doubled, tripled, quadrupled, you know, went up, up, up. And the companies, some of the companies that are manufacturing this stuff are American companies, even though they're manufacturing overseas. It was a huge windfall. The market just, I mean, Jared Kushner even got in on the act, you know, arbitraging these things. So the U.S. Chamber, I mean, you know, it was the chamber that Lewis Powell went to in 1971 with his memo when he said, we've got to get Mm -hmm. political. The U.S. Chamber has gotten political. And under the last couple of CEOs, they have basically bought into Milton Friedman libertarian economic policy and are opposed to basically the government doing anything. Anything that the government can do, we can find a corporation to make a buck and do it better. That's that's their opinion. That's why, in my opinion, that's why they were opposed to it. It's also why you see Freedom Works being opposed to it and other, you know, other groups that are funded by the Koch brothers. But uh, the U.S. Chamber has become extremely toxic over the years, and I think this is just another dimension of it. Andrew, I, I got to run, but thanks for the call. Grace in Black River Falls, Wisconsin. Hey, Grace, what's up? Hi. I just wanted to say that Scott Walker divided the state here, and Trump is taking notes from the playbook. And when I was teaching, the the one statement always was, as Wisconsin goes, so goes the nation. And it all started here with Scott Walker dividing the Democrats and the Republicans and then hamstringing the state when he left. Governor Evers can do nothing, and anything he passes, they rescind. This town was having a, a recall signing on Governor Evers this last Saturday. Wow. So, so give me give me an example, Grace, of something that Scott Walker pioneered in Wisconsin that Donald Trump is doing. Not so much the same things, you know, as you know, examples. I mean, the you know, hamstringing the workers, taking away the unions, embezzling the Badger Care money, just the whole, you know, making parents against teachers, just pitting uh, people against each other, basically pitting against, yeah, absolutely, and. The brain drain we had of all the good professors leaving all the universities, the fact that that it all became a society of workers and not 
a society of thinkers anymore. Wisconsin used to be, you know, the progressives over. Well, and it was progressive know, workers, by the way. That was, the, you know, the, the, that party was largely made up of farmers back in the day. And in, in fact, in Minnesota, it's called the Democratic Farm Party, as I, as I recall. Yeah, but there's so many Something farmers like here. It's all Trump. It's all Trump signs. It's they're yeah. all going to well, think the educated, the educated left. And yeah, I think I think a lot of that goes back to Fox News being so ubiquitous across uh, across rural America. It's uh, it's amazing. Grace, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Uh, Dennis in Bergenfield, New Jersey. Hey, Dennis, what's up? Hey, Tom, um, I'd like to ask you a question about the Federal Reserve. So I understand that the Fed is putting uh, trillions to buy government bonds, you know, treasuries. This is totally the interest rate. No, that's and not how it works, Dennis. The, the, the treasuries are issued... Uh, government bonds are issued by the Treasury Department. They're a way that the federal government borrows money. The Fed then literally creates money with a stroke of a keyboard and buys those bonds, and that's right. how the Fed injects cash into the economy. They're buying those bonds to uh, the Treasuries to uh, reduce the interest rates, correct? Yes. As long as the Fed is helping create demand for Treasuries, it keeps the yield, the amount of interest the Treasuries have to pay, down because, you know, supply and demand, basically. Two questions about that. So, number one, um, to correct me if I'm wrong, I understand it's not inflationary because the Fed is just printing money, but it's not going directly into the uh, economy. It's just buying those Treasuries. And number two, you said the yields. Are they uh, lowering the interest rates right now? I understand because we're in a recession, but also to make de- deficit. Yeah, they're, they're, they're at record lows right now. And whether it's inflationary or not, there's a fair amount of evidence that what the Fed has been doing for the last three years has created inflation in our economy. And it's hard to tease that out. You know, it's like a, you know, a crazy ball of yarn because you don't know if the increase in housing prices is purely a function of demand. People are moving around. You know, the COVID crisis is causing changes in housing patterns. Or if it's purely a matter of low interest rates, you know, that's clearly a a big piece of it. Or if there's some, you know, if it's just simply an indicator of underlying inflation, because inflation is happening or prices are going up in in food and, and, and pharmaceuticals as well, medical services. So it's hard to say. Generally speaking, bad inflation is caused when a primary commodity in the 60s and 70s, it was oil. When the uh, when a primary commodity becomes scarce, and when oil was scarce because of the Arab oil embargoes, that caused this massive inflation that Jimmy Carter inherited from from Jerry Ford, and uh, that was all because of the Arab oil embargo. But the gradual inflation that we've had, I mean, you know, ask ask you know some old fart like me, you know, what were I was making like. You know, a buck twenty an hour back in the '60s, and my recollection is that was the minimum wage. Maybe it was two twenty an hour, but whatever it was, it certainly wasn't seven twenty-five an hour. Which means that just in my lifetime, the value of the dollar has dropped by to a third of what it used to be. That's serious inflation. You know, the the de- de- deterioration of your currency, and uh, and and the Fed is supposed to supervise that. And the question right now for a lot of people, and 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 part of the way that they do that is by 
creating money and buying treasuries. And, you know, the question in a lot of minds now is, has the Fed just completely gone out of control? Are they doing everything they can to protect Donald Trump electorally? And as a consequence of that, are they setting America up for a massive crash after the election? And Professor Richard Wolff would answer that question, yes, or has on this program on a number of occasions. And I would agree with that. Dennis, i got to move along, but... It's the Tom Hartman program, fair and only slightly unbalanced. The place where we ask, is Walmart a person? And we say, no, not a chance. Come on, give me a break. We need to change that law. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Or more accurately, we need to change that Supreme Court non-decision. Those of you who know what I'm talking about know what I'm talking about. We'll do that. Today in the Tom Hartman University Book Club, we're reading from Johan Hari's Lost Connections, uncovering the real causes of depression and the unexpected solutions. He starts out talking about how he had been on antidepressants for most of his life, from his teenage years into his 30s. And then he says, then when I was 31 years old, I found myself chemically naked for the first time in my adult life. For almost a decade, I had been ignoring my therapist's gentle reminders that I was still depressed despite my drugs. It was only after a crisis in my life, when I felt unequivocally terrible and couldn't shake it off, that I decided to listen to him. What I had been trying for so long wasn't, it seemed, working. And so when I flushed away my final packs of Paxil, I found these mysteries waiting for me, like children on a train platform waiting to be collected, trying to catch my eye. Why was I still depressed? Why were there so many people like me? And I realized there was a third mystery hanging over all of it. Could something other than bad brain chemistry have been causing depression and anxiety in me and in so many people all around me? If so, what could it be? Still, I put off looking into it. Once you settle into a story about your pain, you're extremely reluctant to challenge it. It was like a leash I had put on my distress to keep it under control. I feared that if I messed with the story I'd lived with for so long, the pain would be like an unchained animal and would savage me. Over a period of several years, I fell into a pattern. I would begin to research these mysteries by reading scientific papers and talking to some of the scientists who wrote them. But I always backed away because what they said made me feel disoriented and more anxious than I had been at the start. I focused on the work for another book, Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs instead. Sounds ridiculous to say I found it easier to interview hitmen for the Mexican drug cartels than to look into what causes depression and anxiety. But messing with my story about my emotions, what I felt and why I felt it, seemed more dangerous to me than that. And then finally, I decided I couldn't ignore it any longer. So over a period of three years, I went on a journey of over 40,000 miles. I conducted more than 200 interviews across the world with some of the most important social scientists in the world with people who had been through the depths of depression and anxiety, and with people who had recovered. I ended up in all sorts of places I couldn't have guessed at in the beginning. An Amish village in Indiana, a Berlin housing project rising up in rebellion, a Brazilian city that had banned advertising, a Baltimore laboratory taking people back through their traumas in a totally unexpected way. What I learned forced me to radically revise my story, my story about myself, My story about the distress spreading like tar over our culture. I want to flag up right at the start two things that shape the language I'm going to use through all of this book. I'm reading from the introduction. 
both were surprising to me. I was told by my doctor that I was suffering from both depression and acute anxiety. I had believed those were separate problems, and that is how they were discussed for the 13 years I received medical care for them. But I noticed something odd as I did my research. Everything that causes an increase in depression also causes an increase in anxiety, and the other way around. They rise and fall together. It seemed curious, and I began to understand it only when, in Canada, I sat down with Robert Kohlenberg, a professor of psychology. He, too, once thought that depression and anxiety were different things. But as he studied it for over 20 years now, he discovered, he says, that the data are indicating that they're not distinct. In practice, quote, the diagnoses, particularly depression and anxiety, overlap, end quote. Sometimes one part is more pronounced than the other. You might have panic attacks this month and be crying a lot next month. But the, the idea that they're separate in the way that, say, having pneumonia and having a broken leg are separate is not borne out by the evidence. Robert's side of the argument has been prevailing in the scientific debate recently. In the past few years, the National Institutes of Health, the main body funding medical research in the United States, has stopped funding studies that present depression and anxiety as different diagnoses. They want something more realistic that corresponds to the way people are in actual clinical practice, he explains. I started to see depression and anxiety as like cover versions of the same song by different bands. Depression is a cover version by a downbeat emo band, and anxiety is a cover version by a screaming heavy metal group. But the underlying sheet music is the same. They're not identical, but they're twinned. The second insight comes from something else I learned as I studied these nine causes of depression and anxiety that he writes about in this book. Whenever I wrote about depression and anxiety in the past, I started by explaining one thing. I am not talking about unhappiness. Unhappiness and depression are totally different things. There's nothing more infuriating to a depressed person than to be told to cheer up or to be offered jolly little solutions as if they were merely having a bad week. It feels like being told to cheer up yourself by going out dancing after you've broken both your legs. But as I studied the evidence, I noticed something that I couldn't ignore. The forces that are making us depressed and severely anxious are, at the same time, making even more people unhappy. It turns out that there is a continuum between unhappiness and depression. They're still very different in the same way that losing a finger in a car accident is different from losing an arm, and falling over the street is different from falling over the cliff. But they are connected. The book, Lost Connections, by Johan Hari. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.